we read together to remind us of where we were going. That is towards Jesus, allowing the scriptures, the Holy Spirit, and the family of God to form a fidelity of allegiance to him alone. Please read aloud with me as we confess this together. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. Well, good morning. Welcome to Faith Church. We're glad you're in the room and watching online. My name is Matthew. If we haven't had a chance to meet personally yet, one of the pastors here on staff, and it's a joy to open up Scripture together. So if you have your Bible, join me in Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to read a little bit more of that passage of Scripture that we just read corporately aloud together. We're going to dive into it here in just a minute, and I hope you're ready to take some notes, jot some things down, pull out your New Soap 2.0 journals if you've got them, or a piece of paper, or something like that. Uh, if you don't have any of those things, grab your phone. Hop on our free complimentary guest Wi-Fi, and uh, you can go to faithchurchks.org. There's a sermon note card. You can click on it. it. has all of these scriptures, as well as some main points for you to follow along and utilize as we go. You know, we are in this collection of sermons entitled, how the practice of scripture, and we're looking at what it means to love God with all of our mind. And we've said this from the very beginning, that loving God with all of our mind is growing in our understanding, growing in a, a knowledge of him through a, a, a practice of reading scripture, studying scripture, allowing this daily routine of getting in God's word to help transform and help us grow in love for God through our minds, loving God with all of our, our minds. Now, some would say that, uh, you know, the stories of the Bible and scriptures, that they're all just made up like fairy tales. There are those that would say that like these things, that they're, they're not here, they're not real, they're not true, they're just kind of mythological thoughts and uh, good, good stories to tell, and uh, you know, they're, they're, they're not really all that impactful for our lives. Uh, and, and so we've kind of talked a lot about those kinds of things throughout this, this collection as to why we can trust the Bible, why we believe the Bible. While there may be stories in the pages of the Bibles, that's not all that it is. It is so much more than those things that really helps us grow in a knowledge and an understanding of God. But, but I can understand the skepticism that people would have. Because we live in a day and a time where one quick Google search and you could come up with seven different interpretations of any one truth. We live in a day and an age where conspiracy theories are a dime a dozen. If you want to believe it, you can find evidence to believe it. If, if it's something that you want to believe true is, is the reality of what's happening, that somebody's pulling your eyes, some, something, this is happening behind the scenes, this is happening underneath the surface, this is going on. If there is a conspiracy to be told, you can hear it if you want to. In a day and an age where we have a hard time trusting our sources, it's good to know that I believe that there is a source that is unchanging 
has stood the test of time. Throughout histories and generations, people have given their lives for these things. These aren't new ideas. These are ancient historical ideas, things that have changed the hearts and the minds of, of so many people. But we do live in one of those seasons and times where it's easy to find any information that you think it would be true. In fact, uh, in his book, After Doubt, author and professor, uh, Dr. A.J. Swoboda, he, he does this exercise that he tells of uh, with some of his classes and, and some of his lectures in college levels. And he says, to illustrate the troubling nature of this moment that we live in, I invite my students to Google people who deny that the Holocaust happened. When what they begin to find terrifies them, he says, and it terrifies me. The number of people with PhDs who deny that the Holocaust ever happened is astounding and jaw-dropping. The point is, uh, the point is uh, one that I hope haunts them after they finish my class, that one can now find anyone with credentials who can articulate just about anything someone might want to believe. It seems like Huxley saw the future. So did Paul. The challenge for Christians in this quote-unquote matrix of clickbait and Google searches is not that we lack knowledge. It's that our excess of knowledge drowns out the truth in the screaming loudness of culture, pundits, and critics. As Charles Hartshorn once wrote, we live in a century in which everything has been said. The challenge today is to learn which statements to deny, which is why we need discernment from the Holy Spirit to understand what is true and what is not true. You know, we are in a season of Advent, this time where we recognize and refocus a little bit on the coming of Jesus, his, his birth, his arrival on the earth, the Advent, the coming of Christ. And for the church, we adhere to and think about and celebrate and pause and slow our lives down and have certain things that we do that help us to encounter and enter the experience of those who in history have waited with such a hope. We discover the joys of Jesus's birth again and again and we look for peace arising in our own hearts as we are changed by the love of the Father that he showed us in sending Jesus to the earth. This is the season of Advent. We enter the experience of those who were awaiting his arrival the first time. There were over 400 years of silence between the last book in the Old Testament and the arrival of Jesus. 400 years of silence. Waiting, watching, wondering, doubting, believing, hoping that the promised Messiah was soon to come, that Advent would indeed occur. The longing and the ache, it was not a pleasant experience, I can assure you. It's not like the, oh, we've only got two days till Christmas kind of waiting. It's like, I've heard a promise, but I don't know when it's going to show up waiting. It's the pain of longing for something that you believe has been promised to you, yet you still have yet to see it fulfilled. And so you continue to pray for it to come about year after year 
after year. There's something about the waiting and the longing that gets messy, that gets full of pain and heartache and doubt and wondering and, and confusion even at times. But yet there is a holiness to that waiting and longing. Why? Because that's what the people of God experienced for hundreds of years. A waiting with some patience and some anticipation and some belief, wondering what God would do. I don't think we have to sanitize the story of Christmas, friends. I don't think we have to make it all neat and tidy and put a bow around it, and they all lived happily ever after kind of a telling of the story. There was a lot of heartache. 400 years of silence, of oppression, of injustice, waiting for more justice to show up waiting for mercy to arrive, waiting for redemption to come, waiting for rescue from the tyranny that they had experienced. I don't think that we have to sanitize those things. Why? Because Jesus arrives in the midst of all of these moments of our lives and hope and joy and peace and love are found in the midst of those waiting found in the midst of the wonderings, found in the midst of the, can I trust this or can I not try this, found in the moment of trying to discern what is true and right and good and just, this wondering that we all have, this wondering, 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 it's all the hand-wringing that we do, wondering if it'll ever be made right, if the relationship will ever be restored. It's the, the wringing of the hands, wondering if the son or daughter who grew up in church, who has walked away from faith in church, would ever return back to God. It's the, the ringing and the wondering and the waiting. It's the, it's the hope of a dream and a calling that you sense God has given you, but has taken years before you ever see any inch of progress in those moments. It's, it's the longing and the waiting and the wondering and the people of God were left with some words, these words of the, the prophets, words that we read just here a minute ago aloud in Isaiah chapter 9. In fact, I want to go and read a, a larger section of this. Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 1 and kind of read through this a, a little bit slowly together. Now, Isaiah is what is known um, in the Old Testament as a major prophet. There are major prophets and minor prophets. Now, he's not a major prophet because he's more important, wore cooler clothes, or had a greater Instagram following in Israel. No, no, no. It's not, it's not what made him a major prophet versus the minor. A major prophet just recognizes the size of books and writings that we have. The, the sheer number of prophecies that we have is a major amount compared to some of the other ones like Obadiah, where we have very few of his prophecies recorded. So that's the only difference. It's about size of the book, not the significance of the book. Are we tracking? And Isaiah was one of these major prophets. And he says some really interesting things. Isaiah chapter nine, starting in verse one, I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. It says this, nevertheless, the time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. Come on, that's good news, isn't it? It will not go on forever. Although at the time of this, it would still be another like almost 900 years before it would no longer go on. But what is time in God's eyes? It's not the same way that we count time. Nevertheless, the time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulon and Naphtali will be humbled. But there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with, what's that word? Glory. glory. It'll be filled with glory. The people 
who walked in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, oh, a light is going to shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. And like warriors dividing the plunder, you will break the yoke of their slavery. You will lift them the heavy burdens from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod, just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. He's just talking about a peace that will come, a reconciliation, a restoration that will come. Verse 6. For a child is born to us. A son is given. Somebody say given. It's given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never and it's speaking of the rule and reign of Christ. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of, of this eternal, everlasting, never stopping peace. It will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. I love this passage. It's, I spent a lot of time in it this week just like marking things up and writing all over it and correlating things and connecting some dots. Oh, it's such a rich passage. I encourage you to sit with it a little bit this week. Maybe grab your journal, your 2.0 soap journals, and spend some time slowly reading through and journaling this week on this passage, letting the Lord speak to you. But for those of you that have kind of been around Scripture for a while, you, you, you've heard the story of Jesus enough to know that this prophecy is about who? Who is it about? I'll say it with a little more confidence. It's about Who? Oh, very good. Well done. When you go home and you ask your kids what they learned, and then they ask you what you learned in church, your answer can all be the same. We learned about? See? It's amazing, isn't it? Jesus. This is about Jesus. I want to share with you two things today as it relates to the practice of Scripture that's really, really important. Number one, you can write this down. Here's the first thought today. Scripture is foretelling about Jesus. It's foretelling. There are so many scriptures that are telling of, of something to occur in the future, and they're about Jesus. Scriptures are foretelling Jesus. Now, there's this uh, Netflix documentary that's out. It's been out for, for quite a while. It's, uh, it talks about something known as the Christ myth, and they uh, take hours and talk to different philosophies and historians, and they, they are trying to articulate that they believe that Christ is a myth. In other words, that the, the truths and some of the, the specifics of the life of Christ parallel other mythological stories in like ancient Greece and Egypt and all of these others. There, there are other characters in these other thoughts and storylines told throughout centuries that parallel who, who Christ is. The only, the, 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 one of the major issues, though, with that line of thinking is that these stories in other worlds, in other parts of, of the world, in Greece, 
and, 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 and in Egypt and some of these other mythological uh, tellings of things that any of the parallels that look and reference like Jesus, and they do sound an awful lot like Jesus and the person of Christ and what he came to do and who he was, they, they really are pretty amazing parallels. The only problem is that those, those parallels in those mythological stories did not show up until years after the Gospels had already been written. You can read a little bit more about this in the book, The Problem of God, written by a man named Mark Clark, Pastor Mark Clark. In fact, it's on your resource list listed on the sermon notes. It's a book I highly recommend you getting a hold of. There's a whole entire chapter where he walks through the Christ myth and underpins and, and throughout history and um, kind of walks it through teaching us, helping us understand why Christ is real and what was said about him is true and why we can still hold on to. He kind of debunks the Christ myth thought process that's trying to debunk Christ, if you follow all of that. One of the reasons why I deeply have a personal belief that Jesus was real, is real, that he's alive and he is who we believe him to be, are the number of prophecies in the Old Testament that to the detail describe the life of Jesus that he himself fulfilled. This word prophecy is a, is, is a fun one. Um, in, it's one that, that uh, we hear kind of tossed around every once in a while in church world and not quite sure what it means, but in the Greek, it's the word propheteria, and it just simply has two ideas attached to it. So when you hear the word prophecy, it's kind of got two ideas linked to it. It is either a foretelling, in other words, speaking for God or on God's behalf. That's a little bit of what we believe happens every Sunday when we open the scriptures and we talk and we share from the word. We are foretelling some things that God has said and showed and spoken. We are telling of it to others. We are foretelling of Jesus. So when you hear the word prophecy, it has this connotation of being foretelling, telling something on God's behalf, and then also an element of foretelling or predicting future events. It's not fortune-telling. That's witchcraft. It's foretelling. That's biblical prophecy. And this idea of foretelling or predicting future events, um, you'll find this understanding both of foretelling and foretelling within the context of the New Testament and even in the Old Testament. It's all linked together. There are so many prophecies, as some we just read, detailing just the birth of Jesus. But did you know that there are over 300 prophecies in all of the Old Testament about the life of Jesus? 300 of them. In his book, Science Speaks, a man by the name, a scientist by the name of Peter Stoner. I'm not making that name up. That's really his name. God bless him. I think he lives in Colorado. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know that. I don't know that for sure. I don't, I don't know that for sure. Just saying. And in his book, Science Speaks, he talks about the statistical probability of Jesus fulfilling these prophecies. 900, 400, 800 years after they were foretold, Jesus shows up on the scene and he fulfills these prophecies. And he says that statistically, if he were to fulfill eight, everybody say eight. That's eight of the, three, uh, of the 300. If he just fulfilled eight of them, the statistical probability that he would fulfill them to the T, just eight of them, is one in 10 to the 20th power. That's 10 with 20 zeros or one with 20 zeros after it. 
That's a lot of zeros. I don't even know how to say that number. The, the statistical probability that Jesus would fulfill eight of these prophecies, one in 10 to the 20th power. Now, let me give you some basics of probability in case you're wondering how the statistics and probability works. If I had a bucket of 10 tennis balls and I take one tennis ball out and I spray paint it white, put it in the bucket, shake the bucket up, blindfold myself and reach in, I have a one in 10 chance of pulling out the white tennis ball. Are we good? Everybody good with the math lesson here at church on Sunday morning? Sometimes it's grammar, sometimes it's Greek, sometimes it's math. I'm just here to help you. I love you. One in 10. Now, the one in 10 to the 20th power would be like this. If you took silver dollars and you covered the entire landmass of the state of Texas, and you stack silver dollars two feet high, you took one silver dollar, put an X on it, randomly placed it somewhere in the great, big, large state of Texas. In that stack, covering the entire landmass of Texas two feet deep, blindfolded a person, put him in a helicopter, flew him around until he yelled, jump. He jumps out of the helicopter, lands, randomly selects one silver dollar, and it's got the X on it. That's one to... 10 in the, to the 20th power probability that Jesus would fulfill eight of the 300 that he fulfilled. The Bible and the person of Jesus are amazing. Scripture foretells about Jesus. This is one of the reasons why I just happen to believe that what the Bible says, what the Bible is teaching, and what we know historically, even if you only took the, the even if you only used the prophecies about Jesus that were out of his control, right? I mean, Jesus was like, hey, bring me the colt. I'm going to sit on the donkey. We're going to ride into town. Je Jesus did, those are some of his own actions. He didn't control where his father David was. He didn't control that Mary was a virgin. He didn't control that the angels were going to show up in the sky. There were lots of things about Jesus' life that he didn't control that happened all around that were out of his uh, um, ability to make happen. So even if he knew all of the prophecies and made all of them happen, not all of them that we have are him making them happen in the future. It was his decision to be like a lamb led to the slaughter, keeping his mouth shut when they accused him of being things and doing things. He didn't say a word. Yeah, that was his choice. He did that. But there's a lot of these prophecies he had no impact in whatsoever. He didn't call for the census. So even if you only took those, the probability that it would happen are mind-boggling. Near, I say, impossible. But we serve a God who specializes in impossible. We serve a God who does these things again and again. The Bible, Scripture, Old and New Testament foretells us about this Jesus whom we love. St. Augustine said it like this. The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. You want me to say it again? Let me say it again. The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. And the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed, which means everything in this book points to and is a story about one man. His name is Jesus. 
y'all are so smart. Tell you what, Jesus. You know, even in the New Testament, one of the most uh, robust uh, collections of uh, foretelling things, one of the the most robust um, kind of truths or, or prophecies, is in the book of Revelation. And for many uh, believers today, we're, we're, we have a hard time understanding the book of Revelation and the prophecies that it was. I, I want to recommend to you a book by the name of uh, uh, Mystery Explained, authored by, the, by, by a man named David Campbell. And uh, it's on your resource list on the Central Hub. I encourage you to go look for it, find it, read about it. Listen to what he says about the, the book of Revelation, because I, I believe the book of Revelation is about one man. His name is Jesus. And when you read the book of Revelation, you only can interpret it through the Bible, not current events. Because the Bible interprets itself. Culture doesn't interpret the Bible. Events don't interpret the Bible. The Bible interprets the Bible. And he, and he outlines this understanding that it's really the Old Testament that was the grid to which the original hearer, the churches that John was writing to, would have used to interpret and understand the prophecy that John was giving to them. Which is why we have to approach it in a similar fashion. Just listen to how he talks about it in his introduction. He says, Revelation is not a handbook to last day events. It is a pastoral letter written to Christians of every age and every generation on how to live lives faithful to God and Christ in the midst of all the challenges a hostile pagan world throws at them. The visions given to John form a prophetic picture of the sovereignty of God working through all the ups and downs of human history. It assures believers that God is Lord over that history and exhorts them to persevere in obedience in order to inherit an eternal reward that will infinitely compensate for the suffering they have undergone in this present world due to their faithfulness in him. That's just the introduction. The book gets so much more rich and better. I encourage you to pick it up. What's my point? My point is this, that all of Scripture, so many of the prophecies that we see foretell and help us understand about this man, Jesus. Here's the second thought that I want us to grab a hold of today. Not only is Scripture foretelling Jesus, kind of in the future, but Scripture is foretelling others about Jesus. It's for telling others about Jesus. Have you ever um, seen anything truly remarkable? Like something that like made your jaw drop that you were like, I don't believe what I just saw. Something truly remarkable and amazing. Like, 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 like was it the, the time you saw Dude Perfect make like the amazing trick shot that you saw on YouTube? I don't, that was pretty remarkable. Was it some bottle flip that you saw your teenager do that you're like, wow, that's pretty remarkable. It's amazing. Was it the time you... Your children were born, and you're filled with awe and amazement. Or the time you saw somebody hit a hole-in-one on the golf course. Pastor, are you equating a hole-in-one to your children being born? Hey, it's my story. Get off of it. <laughs> Just saying. Remarkable is remarkable. When you saw or experienced something amazing and remarkable that you witnessed, what did you do about it? Most of us told somebody about it. This is what the shepherds did in Luke chapter 2. 
They were minding their own business, hanging out with their sheep, doing their shepherd thing. And all of a sudden, an angel shows up. And then many angels showed up. And they said, hey, be, be at peace, friends. Uh, today, in the city of David, a Savior has been born. His name is Christ the Lord. You can go and find him. He's like a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. He'll be lying in a manger. Go at once. And then the angels filled. They had a front row seat to a heavenly choir. And they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The angels disappeared. And they're like, did you see that? Did you see that? Did you eat late last night? Did you have pizza? Were you high? Mr. Stoner? No, I don't know. But I saw it. You saw it. We all saw the same thing, right? Let's go at once and see this thing that the angel has told us about. So they run to the town. They look and they find everything exactly as the angels had just told them. I would say that's pretty remarkable and amazing. What did they do right after that? Luke 2, 17 and 18 says, after seeing him, that's Jesus in the manger, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. Why? Because the news of Jesus and the story of Jesus that we have in scripture and that has impacted your own life is for telling others. It's not for you to sit back, light a Christmas tree up, and have a reason to give expensive gifts to people. It's to come and to proclaim that there is good news, that there is a child who has been born and given to you and given to me. And those of us who were in deep, deep darkness finally have a little bit of light to see. The scripture and the stories of Jesus are not just foretelling in the future, but they are foretelling. They are for your telling. Jesus practiced this himself. Did you know that? That Jesus told others about himself using scripture? Go all the way to the end of his life in Luke chapter 24. I encourage you to read this passage this week, Luke 24. In Luke 24, uh, Jesus had died, been buried, and rose again. All of the disciples were a little bit bewildered, like, what has happened? I am not sure. They were pretty amazed and astonished again and again and again. And in their amazement and in their astonishment, they found themselves uh, kind of walking and going in different directions. And then there were two disciples who were walking on a road called Emmaus. And as they were walking, they were distraught. Jesus comes up kind of in disguise, incognito. They didn't recognize him. The risen Jesus came along and walked with them on their road as they were traveling to Emmaus. And as they were walking, Jesus comes up and he asks kind of an interesting question. He says, what's the problem? What's your, why, why the long face? And they're like, uh, where, where have you been? Have you been hiding under a rock? Do you not know all of the many things that have happened here in Jerusalem over the last few days? Jesus, the Savior, he, he, was, he was a prophet who did miracles that we believed in. And he's now dead and gone and we don't know where he went. We left him in the tomb, but he ain't there anymore. He doesn't stay in place. Where did he go? We don't know. Bible says that Jesus started to walk with them. Look at Luke 24, verses 25 through 31. It says this. Then Jesus said to them, all you foolish, silly people, silly rabbit. Scripture is for truth. You find it so hard to believe. That's not really in the Bible about the rabbit, in case you're not following along. That was pastoral liberties I took to you. All right, just made sure. Don't leave anybody calling me out online. Heretic. What kind of Bible is that? 
you foolish people. You find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Don't miss this. Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. By this time, they were nearing Emmaus at the end of their journey. Jesus acted as if he were going to go on a little further, but they begged him, would you, would you stay the night with us since it's getting so late? So he went home with them. As they sat down to eat, he took bread, blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them. Suddenly, their eyes were opened and they recognized him and that at that moment, he then disappeared, which is a pretty baller move. Good for you, Jesus. <laughs> if you can, why not? And he did. It's pretty amazing. They didn't see it. They couldn't see it. They, they had read the scriptures. They knew the, they, they knew the scriptures, but they still missed Jesus. Friends, it's possible to study the scriptures your whole life and still miss Jesus. I don't want to be one of those people that looks at scripture and never experiences Jesus, that never sees Jesus, that I have religious experience again and again. I hear somebody talk about it again and again, but I don't see him. I don't know him personally. And some of that comes because I've never opened my mouth to understand the story or to tell the story to anyone else. Scripture is for telling others of Jesus. I think it was interesting that their eyes were closed. They, their eyes were open, but they couldn't really see him. They didn't recognize Jesus. It wasn't until he gave a physical demonstration with bread that they had the aha moment. <gasps> this is the risen Jesus. So sometimes I think the world around us, they, they hear the story about Santa Claus and they hear the stories about the elves, and they hear the stories about why we give gifts, and we sing the songs, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I don't know if there was an angel named Harold or what, but we sing about him all the time, too, and we're just, we sing, and we have the stories, and we have the moments, and we have the candles, and we have the lightings, and we have the, the readings, and it's all very pageantry-like in our world, but I wonder if people are missing the story of Jesus because the people who have been impacted in their story by the scripture and the truth of Jesus, have yet to live as a physical demonstration in the eyes of the people around them for them to clearly see Jesus. Here at Faith Church, we say it like this. We bring faith to life. We're willing to be people who allows our lives and the stories of our lives to be a retelling of the story of who Jesus is as a physical living demonstration. Some of you are in this room because someone helped bring faith alive in your heart. We see it week after week, time after time. This is what we do as the people of God. We not only search the scriptures to understand the foretelling of Jesus, but we search the scriptures and know the story of Jesus so that we can then turn and tell it to others around us about Jesus. I think sometimes we don't tell others about Jesus because there is an ache in our own story. 
there are parts of your story and my story that maybe we don't want others to, to hear about or see. There are some scars, perhaps. There's some things that maybe we're ashamed of, some things that we haven't yet seen the full redemption of or the full restoration of, or we recognize, man, it's in process, or we've got our own doubts and our own certainties and our own wonderings and our own questions. And, 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 and so we allow those things to hold us back from being someone who would be willing to tell and foretell and recognize that Jesus is worth telling about to other people. I don't think that we have to wait until our story has become sanitized before we tell it to somebody else. I think Jesus' job is to sanctify us and in that same process allow some significance of the Savior to be seen in our story, not in the sanitization of how good you are in your story. You're not the hero of your story. I'm not the hero of my story. Jesus is. You want to know what's really amazing, friends? That I'm standing here. It's his amazing grace that I'm standing here. You want to know something else that's really mind-boggling? It's really, really amazing, astounding? Is that you're sitting here too. It's his grace. For unto us a son has been given. It's, it's his grace that he gives you, that brings salvation into your life, that brings restoration into your story, that takes the broken pieces and puts it together in a mosaic of beautiful storytelling, a tapestry woven together of your own brokenness and God's humble, amazing love that transcends everything in your life and my life. We are walking testimonies. Here's my question. When was the last time you told somebody the story of your faith? I want to challenge you this week. Tell somebody about your story of faith. Tell them about it. I want to challenge you. Invite someone who has yet to receive the Savior in their story, where the Savior has not fully entered center stage of their story. Invite them to come to Christmas with you next, next Sunday. Two services, 930, 11. Identical service. Both are going to be packed. Show up anyways. Invite them. Why? Because the Savior that has redeemed your story wants to redeem their story. The Savior that was a true gift in your story wants to be a true gift in their story. And the only way sometimes that God enters someone's story is that someone who already has been impacted recognizes Jesus has changed my life and my story, and that is a story that I need to tell someone else about. It's foretelling. Jesus isn't just foretold about in Scripture, but the Jesus of the Bible is foretelling others like the shepherds did like you can do and like I can do, like we can do together. I think it's interesting that Jesus came as a child, which means after hundreds and thousand years of waiting, they had to wait some more. Have you thought about that? He came as a child. He didn't come as a man. He came as a human in child form. The beginning of something. Waiting 
Friends, we cannot wait to tell our story until all of the woes and pain is gone. We have to let him be magnified and glorified even in our pain, our uncertainty, our wondering, our I'm still in progress moments of life. It's a story worth telling. When Jesus showed up, And when Jesus shows up in your life and he shows up in my life, friends, hear me. It's not an immediate external peace that we encounter. But there is an internal wholeness that has been made. There's something inside that begins to to move and process. We then now have access to the wholeness that Jesus promises us the reign of his kingdom, the the weight of life is not on our shoulders, but on his shoulders. There there is access to something that we didn't have access to before we invite Jesus into our story. Would you stand with me as we come to the table of the Lord? And if... You're a follower of Jesus and you want to partake of communion. I, I hope you've got some in your hands. We, we invite you to partake. If you're at home, I hope you'll grab something. Represent the bread and the juice. Anything nearby will work. Just go ahead and, if you're in the room, go ahead and open up the communion elements. You can peel back the top layer, hold on to that little wafer there, and then go ahead and open up the, the layer there so you have access to the juice. And just hold on to these for a minute. When we're all done partaking and we dismiss on your way out, our, our host will be there with some baskets for you to, to, to get rid of the, the cup on your way out. You can throw it away there. They'll be, they'll be there to grab that from you. But can you just pause for a minute, begin to quiet your mind and your heart. And when you have the elements open and in your hand, would you just kind of close your eyes for a minute? Take a couple deep breaths and let's pause for just a minute. Reflect on the the life story that you've been living, the amazing grace of God in your own life, the gift that Jesus is to you and to me. Friends, communion helps us to rejoice and remember. We drink the juice to rejoice that Jesus came to establish a new reign of peace forgiving us and setting us right. We break the bread and we are reminded how Jesus' broken body makes a path for us to experience wholeness in our own brokenness. It's a work that Jesus does, no one else. Nothing else, it's just Jesus. And you might be here and still knowing that your story's in process. Would you just ask the Lord in this moment, Lord, who who do you want me to share my story with this week? Lord, who do you want me to invite to Christmas service this week? Holy Spirit, thank you for speaking to us. Lord, as we're here at this table, I'm reminded that you came to be the Prince of Peace, that your rule and your kingdom brings peace. It brings shalom. Lord, that shalom is not an absence of conflict or war, 
but rather that shalom is the very real presence of justice and righteousness and wholeness and a new covenant of blessing that you brought to us, Jesus. So as we stand here at the table, we take the bread and the juice, signifying the covenant of peace that we now have, this covenant of wholeness that you bring to us today, into our story. Thank you for it. Let's take the bread together. Now the juice. Now, Father, here we are in this moment. Lord, I've I've done my best to communicate what I believe you've put on my heart for this church today. Father, I pray that you would help us to recognize Jesus in the scriptures, but also recognize Jesus, how you're working in our story so that we can tell others of your good grace and the gift that you've brought into our lives. God, give us the boldness and opportunity this week to share our faith story with someone else, to invite them to come and celebrate the light of the world come to us in our own darkness. I pray blessing today, Lord, over your people. I pray, God, that you would bless us and keep us that you would make your face shine on us and would you be ever so gracious to us. I pray that you would lift your countenance towards us, smiling in delight, and give us your shalom, your peace, your wholeness, your salvation. Lord, everywhere we go this week, would we be reminded that you are deeply in love with us. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all the people of God said, Amen. Hey, friends and family, I hope today's message was life-giving for you. I want to ask you to take a next step and go ahead and click the subscribe button so you never miss another chance to have an encounter with God. And while you're at it, take another step and share it with a friend. Maybe post it on your social network or text a coworker the link. And when you do that, you are partnering and get to be a part of seeing faith come to life in them. Hey, if Faith Church has made an impact in your life, if these messages are helping you gain traction in your faith, would you consider partnering with us financially? When you do that, it helps us widen our reach so that more people can have an encounter with the real Jesus. You can find information and ways to give on our central hub, faithchurchks.org. If you're If you live in the Southeast Kansas region, we'd love to see you in person at one of our Sunday services. You can find those times on our hub as well, faithchurchks.org. Hey, remember this, God is for you and we love you.